This morning we began a two-lesson series on angels. I've been asked if I could address questions with reference to angels, what we know, what we don't know about angels. And just for the sake of those who may not have been here this morning and for the rest of us as well, uh, to be reminded that if you were to be asked this question, why do you believe in the existence of angels, what would you say? Especially since you've neither seen nor heard of an angel. That is, you've never talked to an angel, you've never seen an angel, laid eyes on an angel. An angel has never talked with you. When there is no first-hand empirical evidence, why do you believe there are angels? And obviously your answer would be because of what is revealed in the scriptures. And that's so important because that's how I know anything I know about angels. And in fact, that's the only way I know anything about angels is through the revealed text. So that's how we are going to answer our questions in our study tonight, is what's revealed in the Scriptures. And the whole point of that is to warn us against speculation of saying things like this event that happened, I think that was an angel, or I think I saw an angel, or I think I experienced an angel, because we have no evidence of that if it's not revealed in the Scriptures. There are nearly 300 references to angels in the Scriptures. There's probably more in talking about angels that are not, uh, be, uh, where they're not identified as being angels, and while that reveals a great deal, there's a great deal that is not answered, as you're going to see in our study tonight. Here's what we talked about this morning. Uh, the meaning of the term angel simply means a messenger. When you get through analyzing everything there is to analyze about the meaning of the word, we come down to the bottom line, and that is it means messenger. Talked about the origin of angels, how that they were created beings. Seemingly early in the creation week, according to Job 38, talked about the nature of angels. They're not human. They're not deity. They're lower than deity, higher than humanity. They're heavenly beings. There seems to be rank among the angels. We'll say more about that this evening. And then we focused on their role and a number of things we mentioned about that. But the one thing we want to walk away with on that last point In case you were not here this morning, let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1 and in verse 14. Hebrews 1 and in verse 14 is the only passage that gives me direct information of what they do on our behalf, and it doesn't tell me a lot. And that's in Hebrews 1, 14, speaking of angels that were introduced at verse 6 and 7. Verse 14 says, they're ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation. That's us. And they're ministering for us. What are they doing? I don't know. How are they doing it? I'm not sure. But they're doing something for us on our behalf. They're interested in the welfare of God's people. And that's the conclusion we have to draw. So tonight we want to talk about questions about angels. Several questions we want to seek to answer. There are more questions than these that we're not going to have time to get into. Perhaps you have even more questions than we're seeking to answer. But we'll seek to answer the following. Let's start with this. Does man have communication with angels? Is there any communication between man and angels? In other words, can we as God's people communicate with angels? Say something to them. And can they communicate to us? And if so, what do they communicate to us? Is there communication between man and angels? Let's start with this. Here's how God communicates with man. 
How does God communicate with man? The Hebrew writer said in chapter 1 and in verse 1, God who at various times and in different ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. So the text tells us that God speaks today under the new covenant through his Son, Jesus. Now, the Bible gives us more information about how he speaks to us through his Son. In Ephesians 3, 3 through 5, God revealed his will through the word. That is, Jesus, the Son, revealed it to the apostles and prophets, and Paul said, we wrote it down in few words whereby when you read, you may understand our knowledge of the mystery of Christ. So those are not contradictory texts. One says God speaks to us through his son. Ephesians 3 said the son revealed it by the spirit to the apostles and prophets. They've written it down, the will of God. And now we have the revelation, the written word, which is the revealed will of God. We noted this morning from 1 Peter chapter 1, 11 and 12, that angels desire to look into the prophecies and to know the prophecies, and they did not understand those prophecies. In other words, we can now read and understand prophecies in light of the New Testament that during the Old Testament times, the angels desired to look into, but they didn't fully understand that. So here's what I'm learning from that. They didn't know all the will of God. So if we can communicate with angels, and angels can communicate with us, and they can give us some kind of information, just assume that that's the case, they cannot tell us fully the will of God because they didn't always fully understand the will of God. So here's what we're concluding from those texts. And that is there is no communication or revelation for angels to give. There is no communication. There is no revelation for angels to give. If they did, what would it be? Would it be the same thing we have? In other words, if they gave us the same thing we have, found in the gospel, in the revelation, then why do angels need to give that to us? We already have that in the revealed will of God. If they do communicate with us, what would it be? Would it be different from what we have? Would there be something they give us different from the revealed will of God? And if so, why do we need that that's different from that? If it was something they gave to us, would it be in addition to what we have? In other words, do we have the revealed will of God in our Bibles, but angels sometimes tell us things? And how do I know that's right? In other words, how do I know what this angel, suppose I know an angel spoke to me, how do I know that what he said was right when he might have said something different to you? Or at least that may be the claim. How would I know that? What would they reveal to us? Now let's talk about things of which there is no evidence. There are a number of things of which there are no evidence about angels, but here's a number of those. There is no evidence in the scriptures that angels communicate the gospel. We cited this morning Acts 8 where an angel told Philip to go and join himself. And Acts 10, an angel toward Cornelius to go and seek for Peter, but in neither case did an angel deliver the gospel to the candidate. In neither case was the gospel preached by an angel. Now, if angels are communicating with man and revealing God's will to man, why did they not reveal the will of God instead of sending men or sending men to the preacher? In neither case did they go that was the gospel communicated by angels. There is no evidence that angels appear to man today. 
Just as there is no evidence of miracles today, we find miracles in the New Testament times, I recognize, but there's no evidence of miracles today. There is evidence that angels did appear to man and that angels did communicate with man in the Old Testament and even New Testament times. There is no evidence that angels appear to man today. There is no evidence that angels speak directly to man. There's no evidence of that. Then when somebody claims an angel spoke to me, there is no evidence that an angel directly speaks to man. There is no evidence that angels do anything directly to man. Not for, but to. There is no evidence anywhere in the scriptures, and that's where our evidence has to be, that angels do anything directly to man, communicate or anything else. Not a reference, no evidence. There is no evidence concerning any of those things, and I want to suggest that what that does not mean, though, is it doesn't mean that never, ever happened before. It's like Acts chapter 27. On the ship, we mentioned this this morning, as in the midst of the shipwreck, an angel came to Paul and told him that there would be no loss of life. So did an angel appear to him? Apparently so. Did an angel communicate with him? It did. Did it give him a message? It certainly did. So it's not saying that it never happened, just like denying miracles today doesn't mean it never happened. We're just simply saying there's no evidence of that taking place today. Now let's go to Galatians chapter 1. Go to Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Now what I want us to see here is that angels cannot change the revelation. So the revelation we have, whatever an angel could communicate, if he could would not be anything that could change or alter or be different than the revelation of God. Now notice, it gets back up to verse 6. I marvel that you're turning away from so soon from him who called you into the grace unto a different gospel, which is not another gospel. Some translations will say another gospel, which is not another gospel. That's not contradictory. Those are two different words. In verse 8, or verse 6 rather, the different gospel is one of a different kind, where another gospel at verse 7 is another of the same kind. In other words, it's the same gospel. So he said, I marvel that you're being moved to another gospel, a different kind of gospel, which is not another of the same kind. In other words, it doesn't agree with the revelation. But notice verse 8, but even if we, that is apostles, or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we've preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say we now again, if anyone preaches another gospel than that which you receive, let him be accursed. And so Paul says, even if an angel came down from heaven and preached a different gospel, and you know it's an angel, and you know he was from God, but he preached something different from the revelation, he's to be accursed. So I'm learning from that an angel couldn't change the revelation at all. So, does man have communication with angels? There is no evidence that man and angels communicate one with another. God's revelation is God's communication to us. We pray to God. That's our communication to God. There's no evidence we are to communicate and pray to angels, speak to them. No evidence that angels speak to us. Here's another interesting question, more of a trivial matter. But do angels have wings? That's one of the more common questions that people are curious about, I suppose. Do angels have wings? And what do the Bible say about angels and wings? Well, here's something that we do find in the Scriptures. Angels are said to fly. And there are references to them flying, at least some of them. I know of no evidence that says every angel. Remember, there were legions of angels. 
They're innumerable. I don't know how many angels there are. No one knows. They're innumerable. And that's not to say that any evidence of them flying means every angel flies, but there is evidence of some angels flying. Let's go back to the book of Judges, if you will. Go to Judges with me and Judges chapter 13. Here's a story recently that we studied in Judges chapter 13. And notice in verse 20 that it happened as a flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord ascended into the flame of the altar. So here's a reference to an angel of God ascending into the flame. All I'm trying to establish here is there are times that the Bible talks about angels either flying. We'll, we'll see the word fly used a little bit later. But here is one ascending. Let's go to Matthew chapter 28 now and in verse 2. And here's another reference to angels. And this is at the uh, resurrection. And there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone. I just want you to see that an angel descended. So angels could descend and angels can descend. Now, there's another reference, Daniel 9, Daniel chapter 9, beginning at verse 21, and we see the same thing in Revelation. Let's just catch Daniel quickly. Let's go over to the book of Daniel, and notice in Daniel chapter, <clears throat> chapter 9, and in verse 21, that there's a reference to an angel flying. Notice Daniel chapter 9 beginning at verse 21. And he said, And yes, while I was speaking, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. Now there are other references in the context. This is in a vision that we'll talk about in a moment. But he saw Gabriel, the angel, flying, the text says. Well, another reference over in Revelation, if you will, chapter 8. We'll only notice one of these. Revelation 8 and in verse 13. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 8 and in verse 13. And I looked and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven with a loud voice. So there is a reference to angels flying. Now, what's interesting about Daniel 9... And Revelation 8 and Revelation 14, we didn't turn to Revelation 14, is these are visions. Both cases are visions. All three cases are visions. That is chapter 14, chapter 8, and also Daniel 9. Uh, this was in the midst of Daniel's vision of the 70 weeks in Daniel 9. So these are visions. Anything is possible in a vision. They're not always literal. How they fly, we're not told. In other words, we're not told where, how they would fly. We're not told how the uh, angel ascended into the flame in Judges 13. But we're told that he ascended into the flame. So how they did that, we're not told. Let's move on to another aspect. The seraphim mentioned only in Isaiah 6. We mentioned this morning perhaps the rank, and I say perhaps the rank. There is a rank of angels, but whether the seraphim... Uh, and the cherubim are part of that rank is some question among students. So let's go back to the book of Isaiah, if you will, chapter 6. This is the only time the seraphim are mentioned in the scriptures is in Isaiah chapter 6. Um, and this is in Isaiah's call to be a prophet. 
And this again is a vision. But I want you to notice beginning at verse 2, and it's, and it's uh, above it stood seraphim. Each had six wings, with two it covered its face, with two it covered its feet, and with two it flew. So what are the seraphim? Well, this again is a vision. Again, not always, visions don't always give us a literal picture as we have throughout the book of Revelation and in much of, of those visionary sections of the Old Testament. This is a vision. They may be, and I say maybe because they, we are not certain. I can't be certain. It seems that they are some high order of angels. If there are, and I think there is, rank among angels, this seems to be a high order among angels. Some are not even convinced that they are angels, and they may not be angels. And so we cannot be 100% sure. They're only mentioned here, and what's interesting is in Isaiah 6, or in any other reference, they're never referred to as being angels. Or maybe they are. And they may be a high order of angels. But for me to be assured these are angels, I have no reference and I have no revelation that these are angels. This says they're seraphim. Uh, uh, the, the word means fiery is the idea of the seraphim. But they're only mentioned here, and they're never called angels. So what's the conclusion we draw? Do they have wings? They may have wings. But there's not strong evidence of it. If you think that seraphim are angels, a higher order of angels, then they apparently have wings. At least in the vision they did. What about the cherubim? We're not sure about that, whether they're angels. Some question whether they're angels. And so is, can I be 100% sure they are angels? If they are, there's some high rank of angels, perhaps lower than the seraphim. And they have wings. We won't go into the references on those. But again, there's not real strong evidence in answer to that question. Here's a more important question. And that is, do we each have guardian angels? Do each of us have a guardian angel? That's a very common concept. Let's talk about the idea of the guardian angel. What is the idea of a guardian angel? It's a very popular concept among religious people. The idea is that each individual has his own personal angel. I have my personal angel that's my guardian angel that's different from your personal angel. Not each family has an angel or each church has an angel, but you as an individual have your personal angel. The angel guards and protects you is the idea. Some think the angels even perform miracles. Obviously among members of the church who believe that, and there are many members of the church, by the way, who believe uh, in guardian angels. But among those, they don't think that. But in the religious world, there are many who think guardian angels perform miracles. So if something happens that almost seems, and I put in quotations, miraculous, that's amazing, uh, maybe it's where you almost got hurt and you didn't, or you're in a, a car wreck or something happened and you, or you got sick and you didn't die, your guardian angel performed a miracle is the idea that's involved in that. Some think that even wicked people have guardian angels. It's not just good people and Christians, but even wicked people have guardian angels that are guarding and protecting them. Now, I want to suggest that many believe that concept. Many who are among the church fathers, Jerome and Origen and others, believed this concept, and you, we can read from them that they believed in the concept of, of guardian angels. It may surprise you, J.W. McGarvey. Many of you have his works. 
Uh, he was a member of the church. He went kind of liberal with the instrumental music question. He didn't believe instrumental music was right, but he tolerated it. That's why I say he went liberal with that. Um, but J.W. McGarvey, in his commentary on Matthew, in Matthew 18, he believes the idea of guardian angels. Now, I want to suggest to you the term guardian angel is never used in the Scripture. Now, if there is such a thing as a guardian angel, and it, the Bible could teach it without using that phrase, I understand that. But that phrase is never used at all. That phrase, guardian angel, is never found anywhere in the Scriptures. Now, it's true that angels guarded them. Assuming the cherubim were angels, and they may have been, then they guarded the entranceway of the Garden of Eden. Uh, Genesis 19, Daniel 6, the deliverance from the uh, lions, they guarded, they protected and guarded uh, uh, Peter in Acts chapter 12. And other examples could be cited. I'm just suggesting there are passages that say angels guarded and protected. No one denies that and no one questions that. Now, if we deny that there are guardian angels for each individual, and I do, and I'm going to give more evidence of that, that doesn't mean the angels are doing nothing for us. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 1 and in verse 14. I keep saying this is the only passage that gives me any insight of what an angel is doing for me. I find where he talked to Peter, or talked to Paul, or he delivered Peter out of prison. I can see where angels did things, but I have no evidence that angels are doing that for me. Or for you. But I do have this passage that says that there are ministering spirits sent forth present tense, continuing on. They're doing that even now. They're sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation. What are they doing? I don't know. How are they doing it? I don't know. But they're working on our behalf. So here's the point. That doesn't mean that angels do nothing for us. They are doing things for us. I don't know what that is. I don't fully comprehend, but... That doesn't suggest that we have guardian angels. Now let's talk about the proof text. Before we look at the proof text, I just want to suggest to you that there is not a passage, unless it be one of the following that we're about to list, that even remotely hints at the idea that each individual has a guardian angel. There's not a passage that mentions that. There's not a passage that hints at that. But some think there are some passages, so let's take a look at those. Let's go to Psalm 34. Go to the 34th Psalm. <clears throat> that ought to ring a bell to you. It's one of those uh, twin Psalms. Twin by meaning 33 and 34 go together. So it's one of those twin Psalms that deal with the fear of God. Now that's important because of what we're going to see in the context. Psalm 34 and in verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. And so some argue from Psalm 34, 7, that each of us have a guardian angel that cares for us and protects us because the angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. Now the angel of the Lord, the word angel simply means messenger, as we noted this morning, might refer to the pre-incarnate Christ. And you say, well, it might, but uh, how would you even argue that? Because fear is directed toward the angel of the Lord. Let's go back to verse 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. 
In other words, the angel encamps around if we fear the angel of the Lord. Now, am I to fear the angel of the Lord? Let's go further. Look at verse 9. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no one of those who fear him. Who's that? The Lord. Look at verse 11. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. The context argues for the fear of the Lord and the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. Are you fearing the angel? Are you fearing the Lord? It may refer to the pre-incarnate Christ. But let's just argue that it is the angel, some angel, an angelic being. The text says that he looks after them. Let's go back to verse verse 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. Not each individual having his own angel. So let's just assume this is an angel, one angel, that's watching out for the people of God. The angel is watching out for them and for those rather than that one angel looking out for me and you have one angel looking out for you and you have your personal guardian angel. No evidence here of a guardian angel in Psalm 34 and in verse 7. To say the least, Psalm 34 would have to be stretched to, to teach that. Let's go to, to uh, Psalm 91 now. <clears throat> when this passage uh, is read, just a minute here, uh, this will ring a bell, not because of your familiarity perhaps with Psalm 91, but with the misuse that was made of Psalm 91. Now let's see what the text says. Psalm 91 beginning at verse 9, because you have made the, uh, made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the most high your habitation, no evil shall befall you. I'm reading it Psalm 91 in verse 10, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling, for he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. Sound familiar? You remember where that was quoted? And who quoted it? That was where Satan quoted in the temptation. He quoted from Psalm 91 telling Jesus, if you jump off the, the pinnacle of the temple, why don't you do that? And I'm paraphrasing because, and he quotes Psalm 91, you ought to be able to jump off and be okay because he'll give his angels charge concerning you. Well, he took it all out of context and he misapplied the text. And so do those who use it to teach the idea of guardian angels. What Psalm 91 describes is, a, in a general way, God's protection of his people. It is describing God's protection of his people. Now, go back and read. We don't have time now for me to read back through all of that. But you go back in your own time and read Psalm 91 and see if you don't see spiritual protection and safety is really the emphasis, but it is couched in language of physical protection. Not that literally God is going to protect you from falling and hurting yourself, because if you decide to walk off the stage, then you're going to get hurt. God's not going to protect you from that. But he takes spiritual protection, and so we could better understand that, couches it in language that deals with physical protection. It is as if God is protecting you, Go back now to verse 10. No evil shall befall you. No plague shall come near you. And uh, look at verse 12. That if you dash your foot against a stone, that he'll bear you up uh, lest you dash your foot against a stone. He's going to keep you from tripping, keep you from falling. Now, does that mean if it's taken literally that if you go walking through and you there's a log you don't see, that God's going to keep you from tripping over that? No, it doesn't mean that. 
What he's doing is talking about spiritual protection and couching it in language of physical protection. That's how the devil misapplied it, by the way. Now notice that here in this text, there's a plurality of angels that are given charge. Go back now to verse 10, uh, or verse 11. He will give his angels charge over you. It's not the idea of an angel, one angel given charge of one individual. That is that one personal protection that you have. Psalm 91 doesn't uh, even remotely give the idea of a guardian angel. Now another text that's used is Acts chapter 12 and verse 15. When Peter was released from prison, you remember, <clears throat> that Rhoda goes to the door, and when she uh, tells that Peter's at the door, remember what the reaction was, look at verse 15. And they said to her, you are beside yourself, but she kept insisting that it was so, and they said, it is his angel. So Rhoda comes to the door and sees Peter, she goes back and tells the, the folks assembled, that Peter's at the door, and they said, no, he's not at the door. We know he's in prison. I, well, he's at the door, and she keeps arguing. They said, no, 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 it's not him. Maybe it's his angel. Now, that's interesting. I want to suggest to you, the author of the book of Acts reports rather than endorses the view. Luke did not say that this was his angel. Nor did an inspired writer say it was his angel, but the inspired writer merely recorded what the view was. They thought perhaps it was an angel. It's not a statement from an inspired writer, but a conjecture recorded by an inspired writer. That's what that is. No evidence that that was his angel. In fact, it wasn't his angel. Linsky observes that Luke does not state a scriptural doctrine, but only the superstitious idea of those that were alarmed by Rhoda's report. And Linsky is right. Nothing is said to give the idea that each person has an angel. Uh, they may have thought that. That may be what the statement was. But no endorsement is given to that in the text. Now, what's interesting is verse 17 now. Peter comes in and begins to explain some things. So he motioned them to keep silent once he comes in, and he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison and said, go tell the things to James and to the brethren, and he departed and went to another place. And what's interesting is, when Peter explained, he said nothing about a guardian angel. He did mention about an angel, but he didn't mention a thing about a guardian angel. And about, you're right, that was my spirit, or it could have been my spirit, it says nothing about that. Well, let's give a little more attention to Matthew 18. This is the most used passage to teach the idea of a guardian angel. So let's, let's take a look at Mark, Matthew 18 and in verse 10. Matthew 18 and in verse 10. This is the one J.W. McGarvey commenting upon. He was a member of the church, a scholar, a good student of the text. And McGarvey thought that this taught guardian angels. The most used of the passages to teach this idea. Let's see what it says. Matthew 18 and verse 10. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. If I wanted to teach the concept, I think I would argue from this passage more than the others and would have a stronger case. But let's see what the text is saying. Here's the point of the text. Earlier in the context, there were the disciples that were filled with pride, arguing who is the greatest. 
The point of mentioning the angels here is the fact that even lofty angels are concerned about the welfare of these children and those that were lowlier, those that were humble, whereas those who are crying out wanting to be the greatest don't have that same kind of concern. Even lofty angels have concern that you don't seem to have. That's his point. That doesn't mean he doesn't talk about guardian angels, but I want you to see the point. Note that the angels here are in heaven. Go back to verse 10. Their angels always, in heaven their angels always see their face. Most of those, maybe not all, of those who believe in some form of guardian angel believes the angel comes down and he protects you and guards you. He's with you here on earth. But their angels are in heaven, according to this text. There is no, in, there is no evidence in this text that each individual has his own protective angel. Notice, their angels. There is no evidence that each individual person has his own particular angel. Like what Wayne Jackson said, he said, but this passage is too ambiguous to lead to a firm conclusion regarding this matter. In other words, there's not enough evidence in that text to draw out a strong conclusion where I have to say, I, I do now believe in, in guardian angels. Uh, it had to be a little bit of a stretch for men like McGarvey to draw that. All right, let's go to another question. This one won't take long. Are all angels good? Perhaps we have the idea that an angel is always an, a, a heavenly angelic being, and therefore they're all good. Not so. Not all angels have our best interest in mind. So let's just suppose, we've tried to establish angels are not speaking to us, and angels are not communicating with us, but let's suppose they could. Could I trust anything that was labeled and I knew for sure it was an angel? And the answer is not so. The devil has angels. Hell is prepared for the devil and his angels, the text says. So not all angels have our best interest in mind. These are angels that are servants of Satan. His angels. In Revelation 12 and in verse 9, we'll not take the time to read that but there was a war that broke out, and this is really the picture in Revelation 12 of the, the problems going on on earth in the persecution is really a, a play out of a greater war taking place in the spiritual realm, and there was a war that broke out between good and bad angels. All I'm trying to establish is there such a thing as bad angels. Now remember, angels can have um, free will, and that should say they can sin. I guess they can win too, but... Um, they can sin is the point that I'm trying to make there. That if they have free will, they can sin. So there are such a thing as bad angels. Satan must be a fallen angel. That's another study, and I'm just going to hit on that briefly, about the origin of Satan. We talked about the origin of angels. God would not have created an evil man, an evil being, an evil spirit being. He didn't create evil angels. He must be a fallen angel because there are angels that fell. 2 Peter 2, Jude, verse 6. That is the best explanation in my mind of the origin of Satan. You say, well, I don't buy that. Okay, then, then that's fine. Then come up with one that's better and I'll be willing to listen to that. And there are some other explanations. One of which is God created him as an evil being. But I don't think that's a better explanation. That reflects on my God of creating a being like Satan. Seems to be fitting this picture of a fallen angel. That best explains his origin. 
which answers the question, not all angels, I think Satan himself would be an angel that's fallen, do not have our best interest in mind. Now let's close by talking about the destiny of angels. What about the destiny of angels? What is the destiny of angels? Well, there are angels that fall and angels that fell, meaning they fell from their first estate. Uh, they were not content, and therefore they rebelled against God. We read these passages this morning, 2 Peter 2.14 and Jude 6. Matthew 25, verse 41, the devil and his angels, those three passages we just mentioned. So I'm learning from that that fallen angels will perish. That's what's going to happen to them. They're in Tartarus, that is, they 